I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the February 16, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Tracy Law, Carolina Bursiaga, and Rachel Montan, co-commissioners of 60 by 16 of the Associated Student Body USC's official voter registration campaign, take up the charge of getting all you anteaters to participate in this year's elections. Then, during the second half, it's a pleasure to have on the show the Director of Working Memory and Plasticity Lab, Professor Suzanne Yegi at UCI's School of Education, currently calling for recruits for her research on memory training for seniors. She'll make our brains malleable with her really interesting findings. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Tracy La, Carolina Bursiaga, and Rachel Montan, co-commissioners and interns of the Associated Student Bodies at UCI's 60 by 16 initiative, a campaign that I've covered previously and have every intention of circling back to over this electoral cycle. Rachel Montaigne is a third-year political science student. She is an intern for 60 by 16 initiative and has interned as well for Congressman John Garamendi in Davis, California. Carolina Bursiaga, currently in her third year, is double majoring in social policy and public science and political science. She's interested in a career in government and public policy. By being in the 60 by 16 initiative, she hopes to educate students at this campus on important political issues, current events, and create engaging political discussion. Just a huge order, I can tell from my, my little polling I do from time to time casually. Tracy Law is a third-year undergraduate student, double majoring in political science and social policy and public service. She's the co-commissioner of ASUCI's 60 by 16 initiative. You'll hear us say this over and over because when you know it, they won't need any fluorescent vest. You'll know what they're up to. As commissioner by 60 by 16, she hopes to provide many opportunities for her peers to engage in political discussion, learn about important political issues, and remember why their voice and vote matters. There was a 210 vote margin for one of our city council races. There was less than a seven vote margin in one of the county board of supervisors races about five, seven years ago. But who's counting? So, as I said, she's hoping uh, to bring this organizing, the primary presidential debate screenings and upcoming local candidate debates and a ballot educational series. Carolina Bursiaga, Rachel Monten, and Tracy La join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, ladies. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for having us. That is Tracy. Carolina, your voice so everybody has. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having us again. Hi, this is Rachel. Thanks for having us. Okay, it's great to have all you. The ASUCI elections themselves are a means for your promoting the importance of students being more informed about whom they want to vote into office. Your commission is completely nonpartisan with the goal to inform students about their votes mattering. Tell us about this year's focus, how you're bringing in speakers in government and hosting debates. Tracy? Okay, I guess I'll take that question. So uh, this is Tracy talking. Um, 
So this year, because it's the it's 2016, which means it's 60 by 16, um, we're planning on hosting all of the primary debate screenings. We've already done over half of them. Um, our goal is to also just provide as many educational opportunities as possible for a student body um, by reaching out to students in any way we can. We do this by hosting the, the primary debate screenings. We do this by, we actually started the Canvas Debate Series this year, which um, is a series that allows the four different political organizations on campus to debate with one another on different important political issues happening in our country and on our campus, sometimes even like uh, internationally. Okay. How did what's the turnout? Are you uh, encouraged uh, and what how invigorated was the uh, the discourse and back and forth? It was pretty exciting to be honest. Um Oh good. Yes. I want to be honest. Yeah. Of so course. waste of time not to be. Yeah, so um a lot of students actually turn out for our events. Um we do this a lot by collaborating with a lot of different clubs. So by collaborating with a lot of different clubs, we get a lot of different people to come. Um we reach a wider audience of students. Um and we've seen a turnout of about the first primary debate screening we had had about 200 students come out, and in these debate series, we've had 70 to 100 students come out to each of them. We've also seen community members and some of UCI faculty have also came out to our events. Okay. That's good news. And did it matter what time of the quarter it was? Can you gauge? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, we saw a lower turnout during midterms, uh, understandably, but a lot of students still came out, which was pretty, pretty good news for us. Okay. So, which one of the other? Do you want to tell us how electric it was, or what? Because we're, we're here, we're all. This is like a PSA for, for po- political electoral season engagement. So, just what what was the impression in the back and forth there? Hi, this is Rachel. Well, in the first debate that we had for the Democrats, there was a huge turnout there for the sh- the showing of that, and people were really into it and clapping a lot for Bernie actually for Bernie Sanders so I think that we're definitely seeing people be more politically active on the campus with how they're um, showing out to events and reacting to everything okay so uh, how long has have um, each of you been involved with 60 by 16 and what trends are you noticing with your outreach Maybe Tracy takes that first. Okay, great. Thank you. So I've been part of 6 by 16 since its uh, initial, like, since its first year. So I've been part of the 6 by 16 commission for about a year and a half now. This is our second year into it. And the first year, we didn't see as much of a turnout because uh, this was during the midterm elections. And I think it correlates very well with the voter turnout in the midterm elections. Um we didn't see high turnout there with students or, like, with, even within our commission, we didn't do a whole lot. Um, but this year, because it's so, the, like, the election season is so interesting and invigorating, there's been a lot more students coming out. People are a lot more excited. So then each one of you go out individually. You go out and register students, possibly. I mean, faculty administrators are fair game, too, right? That's what you're, those, because I, I've, uh, I've certainly uh, <clears throat> done my uh, share of browbeating some that that like to go and they love to go meet with their with congressional <laughs> members and I say, well, why aren't you registered? And I at least I got that person registered. How much he's voting? So anyway, there's all there are there's fair game subjects. But so why don't each one of you give us the pitch that's worked with getting students to sign on and get registered? So Rachel, what's your yeah. best pitch? Um, so. 
when we are out there boothing, we'll just stop people and be like, hey, are you registered to vote? And if they say no, we'll be like, hey, it only takes a few minutes. You can just come over here. It's really important for your voice to be heard in our democracy. So why don't you come on and do it? And most of the time they do. Sometimes they're busy and just walk past. But um, we have pretty good turnouts at our boothing events. So, Okay. Carolina, we've we've been waiting a lot to hear from you. <laughs> oh yeah, and even so, sometimes like sometimes students are like, oh, um, they might not want to register to vote just because they might not. It, it's something that they've just never done, so they be like, oh, like yeah, my vote might might not really count. But we still try to tell them like, oh, like you really don't get you. Don't get like you don't lose anything by registering. So a lot of times, yeah, we end up convincing them, and sometimes like like they're like excited about it even after. So they are. Yeah, yeah. So it's really about like letting them know how their vote really does count. Do you talk about that the vote has federal to local elements to it? That they're that voting down the ticket all the way is a something not only to be aware of, but to prepare for. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes we do get students who come in and, like, we'll ask them, like, oh, are you registered to vote? And they'll say, yeah, I'm registered to vote. Oh, um, in L.A. or something, like, wherever they're from. Uh huh. So um, we'll let them know that they could also register to vote here just so they could also vote locally. And um, since, they'll be reg- since they're registered in another city, they just won't be able to register here at, at the Orange County one. So we'll register them here also. Okay, so do, do do they end up registering yeah, where their times, campus is? Yeah, a lot of times. Um, I will usually tell them that since they're living here at UC Irvine, like in Irvine, that it's a lot that it's more beneficial for them to vote here, just because th- this is where they're currently living. They can meet the candidates where they're living and, yeah, yeah. and assess them and vote accordingly. Oh no, I'm really we because uh, your predecessors were able to get a good turnout of city council candidates at the student center for the 2014 election so uh, that that I don't know that the students would have that kind of of uh, access or proximity mm-hmm. to a yeah. um, an LA wide uh, you know municipal uh, electoral board mm-hmm. so and uh, Tracy what's your best pitch to get somebody registered so when I do this, I'm usually out on a table somewhere and I see students walk by. And so I'll always go, hey, are you registered to vote? Or, um, hey, have you been following the presidential election? That usually gets students to come and say okay. yeah or no or, yeah, Trump's running or something like that. <laughs> um, and then they always say uh, no and then they hesitate. And so I say, I mean, it only takes a couple minutes. Um, it'd be really beneficial for you and you get to be part of our democracy I usually say something and try to get them to laugh, um, so they see that it's like not um, like scary for them to register to vote or anything or to have. Yeah, um, and then it usually turn, it works out like this. Um, as long as I think you try to engage the students and just say, "Hey, have you done this?" Um, a lot of times they they usually want to do it. They do. Mm-hmm. They do. Are there issues that you bring up, or do you, or, do you, or do you tease an issue out of them and say, "Hey, so." So for those of you who just joined, you want to know who these illustrious young women are. My, they are my guests, Tracy Law, Carolina Bursiaga, and Rachel Montaigne. They're co-commissioners and interns of 60 by 16, an organization affiliated with the Associated Students of UC Irvine to engage anteaters of all shapes, sizes, and stations here to register and remain, we, we hesitate to say, engaged in the electoral process. 
Well, there were early voting opportunities and other aids to raise the turnout uh, up to what it was 2008. There are ways to do that. What can you uh, tell us is in store for early voting? I'm not sure if there's as much early voting in primaries as there are in general elections, but what can we look forward to on campus? Does somebody have that one? Right. So the yes, Cal- Tracy. Yeah, I think this is me again. Um, so we have the California primaries in June. And the last June six. Are we close to that? I believe it's June six. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the last day to register to vote for that is May twenty third. So uh, we have that day, but we know that um, on the national election day, so November, we'll have six polling stations at UCI, and they'll be located at all the housing um, locations here on campus. Okay. So I wanted to um, find out. So I talked a little bit about issues that. Uh, we now have a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. It was just created. Justice Scalia just died over the weekend. So um, I don't know if that's something that you are bringing in as uh, to, with, the, with greater stakes for uh, the people registering and participating in the election. Is that something you're already mulling over and already tried? Mm-hmm. Tracy? Yeah, definitely. Um, so our th- last third and last campus debate series is happening next tuesday okay tell us yeah we're gonna uh, hear about all those events go ahead yeah definitely so um this debate will be asking the student debaters um questions on various topics uh, locally nationally and internationally or um, so foreign affair issues so one of these questions we're probably going to ask them about um the judicial appointment and uh, because in the news recently, uh, the Senate um, has stated that they are going to try to block President Obama. The, Senate, the a party in the Senate, not the whole Senate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On. Yes. Um, so the party leader, so the majority leader, um, right. has said that they're going to try to block President Obama from appointing a um, Supreme Court justice. So we're going to ask the debaters a question about that and what they think should be done about it. I, and I also see this as a a registering voters kind of a pitch that. You know, the stakes are high, that there's there's lots of decisions that are put on hold, and those decisions affect dreamers that are on this campus. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all kinds of things I can think of. Your health care coverage, your uh, access to a, a safe abortion, and all those kinds of things are in play. Uh, uh, union uh, mm-hmm. considerations, your, your teachers, your public school teacher union um, support and that kind of a thing. So that's... But so that that gets to be a walking uh, a, a talking point. So I would like for all three of you to tell us then uh, what are events that listeners can turn out to and that you have planned. Let's start with Rachel. Yeah, so like Tracy said, we have um, an event February 23rd, our last campus debate series debate. And um, that's at 6 o'clock in the Crystal Cove Ballroom. To give us the whole date? Uh, February 23rd. February 23rd at 6? At 6 p.m. And Crystal Cove Auditorium. Okay. Yes. Can't miss that. Everybody knows where that is. Yeah. Okay. In That's one of them. And, who, and what will be the forum exactly? Uh, it will just be the student debaters answering questions about policy issues that are going on uh, locally on campus and nationally and um, what they think should be done about them. Okay, that's one event. Is there now anything else planned after that? Uh, yes, Tracy. Yeah, we plan on screening the very last of the primary debate um, debates. So the last um, Democratic debate screening will be on Wednesday, March ninth, and the last Republican debate screening will be on Thursday, March tenth. 
Okay, same place. Um, and that will be in Zotzon, right across from the food court. So, and the, what times? Then that's when the debates begin. So yeah. it's roughly about roughly five to six p.m. Okay. So that's going to be a staring down finals week, though. So that's going to be a tough sell. Somebody's trying to catch up in their quarters. But so right. this will this will be some interesting for you. You all have to get ready your, <laughs> your finals so you can be there and present. <laughs> so two things I I like to ask, especially young people that are becoming activists. It's what is this teaching you about yourself? What what kind of skill sets are you gaining from? reaching out to your peers to do something important. Carolina, this is it. This is take it away. I think that it really, throughout throughout this, just registering people to vote and letting them know about um, the different events that we have, um, we really, we're learning more about like leadership skills and also learning to talk to different people because throughout this we encountered various different types of students we encountered those students who are very informed about the different event the events going on different things going on in politics and we also encountered those students who just don't have any type of interest and throughout that we try to get them to become interested and we just encountered different types of people so throughout this we just it's just a new way of learning how to deal with different people, how to communicate with them effectively. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that I've learned throughout this. Um, and I've just really learned more about trying to get people engaged with politics itself. It's really important to do so just because we're at an age where a lot of times they're like, oh, millennials don't really care about politics. But I think a lot of people do really care about it, but it's a different way. A lot of times students, instead of going out to events or, like, stuff like that, they instead are more, to like, they communicate more throughout social media, and that's the way that they are more involved. But it really depends. Okay. Very good. Rachel, what have you learned about yourself? Uh, so I would say that I have social anxiety pretty good. Um and so when we're out there boothing and trying to get people to register, it's a good opportunity for me to get over my fears for that. And I want to enter the public sphere also of government. So I definitely do need to be able to talk to a lot of people on the spot. So it's definitely, I've noticed that I've gotten better with that. I can tell it's breaking through your you're exuding such radiance, like it's there's more fearlessness now than when you started doing this. Yeah, so there definitely so is. This is, this is there's a huge dividend. I, it seems that you're registering. So good, good for you. Mm-hmm. And Tracy, what what have you also discovered? Oh. Added to your skill set and learned about yourself. <laughs> uh, definitely a lot. So I've learned how to definitely be a lot more patient, um, especially huh. when I'm engaged in in like discussions with. Some of my peers who may have different political, like have a different political ideology or um, approach to politics as me, which can get frustrating at times. Um, but I've learned how to speak to students um, and agree to disagree. Um, I've also learned how to put on events. And a lot of times um, you can like lose hope when you put on these events and some students don't turn out or students aren't as involved or no one really cares about what you're doing. I've learned that um, even if it's like one or two people who just come out, that that's what matters. If one or two people uh, are getting out there and learning about politics and why it affects them, I've definitely learned a lot about that. Um, This whole process has just definitely taught me a lot how to be patient. (laughs) And um, uh, I've learned a lot how to talk to students. I've learned a lot about um, from my um, 
my peers also about different policies and just how to approach um, event planning, um, politics, and just uh, just like talking to one another in a very positive way. That's a that's a great deal that you're learning. So I I wanted to um, have you all consider. Please, oh please, keep coming back here. Where I'm on you to use this platform for all of your outreach efforts. And I'm going to have Neil Kelly on, the Orange County Registrar of Voters. His, this is a ritual. He, he comes on every every primary and general election to talk about what the deadlines are, changes under the ballot construction, that kind of a thing. So what would you like him to do, as well as the Vice Chancellor of Communications, Kate Klimaudu, to support your getting the penultimate turnout here on campus? Tracy? So Kate Klimel has actually came to some of our events. Um, I actually got to meet with her a few times, and she's very enthusiastic about what we do, which is really great. So having support from her in any way, whether it's just like verbally or showing up to our events, um, inviting some of their uh, who they know to come out to our events helps us a lot. Um, in regards to Neil Kelly, um, it would be wonderful if he helped us put on some of our voter registration drives um, gave us some materials to hand out to students, um, pamphlets, literature. And if he gave us some tips on just how to like get as many people to register to vote as possible, um, where to go, how to do this, good pitches to use. Yeah, I'm not sure. If, uh, I know he's an administrator. I know he can talk about what the parameters are, but I'm wondering if perhaps uh, party activists, movement activists are the ones that might even be in a, a better position uh, to to go full bore with that but I, I can sort of see him being official mm-hmm. and then because uh, he's administering it all from a distance but that the people that are in the trenches that are as I said in movement politics might be also some source but anyway we'll, but that he can get you more materials and more visibility and we're hoping I can get him to tape another PSA which he did for me in 2012. Yeah so. that, that would be great and more literature um, dates when to um, register to vote when the last days are um, and information on the different ballots or ballot. Oh, the propositions mm-hmm. are all oh, going propositions. to be on the general election. Mm-hmm. There were a few that were grandfathered in the last primary, but with that now the the state law is that they're all to be considered on the general election ballot, which I, I think it's good public policy because that's where there is a greater turnout. It's more representative of of the the population if the they more of them are weighing in on those ballots but and so and there are propositions that are all the way from the state down to the local level so so that that'll be an important thing for you to keep pitching is that all the way down the mm-hmm. ticket there's something going on that's all the time we have this round i want to thank the co-commissioners and interns of ASUCI's 60 by 60 campaign Tracy Law Carolina Bursiaga and Rachel Montaigne keep the charge it's so important thank you Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. All right. We'll be right back after a station break with my next guest, uh, Suzanne Yagi at UCI School of Education. Don't go away. J'étais tranquille, j'étais peinard. Accoudé au flipper, le type est entré dans le bar. A commandé un jambon beurre, puis il s'est approché de moi. Puis il m'a regardé comme ça. T'as des bottes, mon pote, elle me botte. Je parie que c'est des Santiago, viens faire un tour dans le terrain vague Je vais t'apprendre un jeu rigolo, à grands coups de chaîne de vélo Je te fais tes bottes à la baston, moi j'y ai dit Laisse béton Laisse béton, I can't resist, that's hit the pavement in French My next guest is professor at the School of Education, Susan Yaki 
here to talk about her research on brain training. She's recruiting participants on a new study, and we'll go over that as well as work that, that applies to brains of all ages. Suzanne Yecki is an associate professor at the UCI School of Education and the Department of Cognitive Sciences, directing the Working Memory and Plasticity Lab. We'll talk about plasticity big time here, too. So uh, she, prior to joining UCI, she was at the University of Maryland College Park at the Department of Psychology and the Program of Neuroscience and Cognitive Science. Professor Yaki's work on processes of working memory and related higher cognitive function is leading edge and has been published in many high-impact journals and has been featured in the New York Times, National Public Radio, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and other popular media. She completed her PhDs, plural, in psychology and neuroscience at Bern, Switzerland, and then her postdoc at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. She joins me in studio today. Professor Yaki, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Well, today, Professor Yaki will disabuse the understanding that many of us slumped over early childhood literature. We're led to believe that brain plasticity opens and closes in the first several years of human development, you spent a great deal and attention fine-tuning the opportunities for brain plasticity throughout the entire lifespan. It's remarkable. Why don't we begin with the mission of your lab with respect to working memory, or also in a short-term memory, working memory skills as well as general skills? Yeah, thank you, Claudia. So really most of my research has been dedicated to understand and investigate working memory processes. And working memory, we see working memory as our cognitive system that allows us to store and work with a limited amount of information for a short period of time. And that sounds very abstract, but I can give you a few examples. So if I would ask you to multiply 30 by uh, 35 in your head, what you have to do is come up with, you have to <laughs> um, multiply the subcomponents of this task and add them up in your head and come up with the correct answer. Or also other things, if um, uh, I have you read and process a complex paragraph, you have to keep track what's going on in the paragraph and remember the reference to the word it and so on. Or also for students, if they um, take notes while following a lecture, they have to keep track of what is going on. And all of these examples um, require conscious, active working memory processes. So the working memory allows us to do all these kinds of things. So working memory is really essential for a very wide range of complex cognitive tasks. And one of the very interesting features about working memory that has been interested me is that it has a very tight um, uh, limitation in, in capacity. So there are large individual differences in how much information we can keep in mind. So people differ in terms of how much information they can hold in working memory and also how, how easily they um, can hold that information in the face of distraction. So remembering things while we are being distracted or uh, we, we get um, some other things get in the way. And We'll talk about some yeah. of those things. Yes, go ahead. So, and these individual differences are also related to the fact that working memory capacity is very predictive for how well we do in school. So people typically with higher working memory capacity are doing better in school. 
And also working memory functions are among those functions that are highly susceptible to age-related decline. So we often see declines in our uh, capacity to hold information in mind, especially while being distracted. And it's also one of these functions that that is typically impaired in a very wide variety of uh, clinical disorders, such as major depression, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and so on and so forth. So it's a very critical skill and ability to have um, and it's very relevant, relevant in daily life and educational settings. So the reason why I'm focusing my research in that is really trying to understand the nature of these working memory um, limitations. So I'm curious what happens uh, in our brain and in our behavior when we get at our capacity limits and also when we go beyond capacity limits. And furthermore, I'm very interested to see whether we can actually expand these capacity limits uh, with experience and training. So so that's really what we're we're coming in. And I want to say a motivation for me in covering all of this it's not an arms race for, you know, super brains to sort of squelch what other people are doing. I'm doing I'm really my motivation is to it's as an aid for people to get the most out of how they're experiencing the world and that right. kind of because I everything so many things in uh, in modern research are are, are preparing people for t- stepping step turning up the arms race of competition in in all sectors and i i would just want to make this sort of like how people can cope better and get right. more out of it so that's mm-hmm. it's a something it, there's a, an undercurrent of all those uh, possibilities well i would like for you it would be useful if you could define and make distinctions and you talked about them in covering this uh, work you're doing with working memory between the concepts of stretching memory induced plasticity tightening attention memory fluid intelligence increasing intelligence and brain aging yeah i mean i know that's like <laughs> but 35 years of work yeah right so i was just about to say so we <laughs> we have only what 15 minutes or something so that's a lot to cover so so working memory is really one of these skills that underlies all these concepts that you have mentioned before so our ability to store information for a short period of time and remembering other things that really facilitates all the other things you were um talking about uh, earlier so our memory skills if we're able to to store information and and um, being resistant to distraction that actually also allows us to pay attention better, focus our attention better on certain skills. So let's say listening to a lecture and taking notes or being able to really focus on the relevant things and ignore the irrelevant things. And if we can do that, then we might also remember things um, better later on. So all these things will then be able to enter into our long-term memory, which is then later on what we need to retrieve the information when we we, we go and make um, uh, are being tested in a final just uh, keeping uh, for the the undergraduates or the graduate students here as well. So when we talk about plasticity, you also um, talked about plasticity. So that's just a very general uh, function of our brain, our brain's capacity to change its structure and its function as a result of development, typically. So our brain changes across our entire lifespan as well. So something I want to point out uh, before as well. So our brain still develops, so it doesn't stop after we're six or ten. So really, our brain develops and it reacts to our experiences, to things that we learn. It constantly adapts to to um, to do the environment and neural plasticity, so structural and functional plasticity allows our brain to to be responding to these differing challenges uh, as well. 
Um, so, so if we are in a stimulating environment, so, so we read, we write, we interact with others, that also allows our um, brains to change to these different uh, demands as well. So our connectivity between different neurons changes. So we grow brain um, uh, cells throughout our lives as well. And that allows us to be flexible and adaptive to our environment. So that's what I mean with, uh, or that we mean with uh, neuroplasticity here. And then a memory fluid intelligence? Yeah, so fluid intelligence is one of the things that we have been very interested in uh, in our research because fluid intelligence is, is can be defined as our ability to understand and reason and solve problems, uh, think about novel and abstract concepts, and, and usually it's about solving new and unfamiliar problems. So usually we face some problem for which we don't have any experience, so things that we have to figure out. So our fluid abilities allow us to do these things. And fluid uh, intelligence or fluid abilities is one of these um, cognitive mechanisms that's highly predictive, again, as working memory, um, for how well we do in school, how well we do at our job. So it, it's really related to our fluid abilities. And um, people often have assumed that we're just born with a certain amount of or a capacity of fluid abilities and there's not very much we can do to change our mental ability. But, but recent research in the last couple of years have indicated that there are lots of things that we can do to increase our uh, capacity to solve new problems and, and to to, to reason abstractly as well. And one of them is through working memory training, what we are doing in, in our lab. And just to give you a counterpoint here, so people also talk about crystallized intelligence. Um, so oh. um, we have two types of intelligences, so to speak. So fluid intelligence, our ability to reason and, and uh, solve new problems. And crystallized would be the accumulation of knowledge as... Um, uh, as we go to school, so it's it's usually th thought of school-related knowledge, uh, the ability to use skills and the experiences that we have accumulated over time. And what's interesting when we look across development too, so typically crystallized intelligence skills, so our ability to use those skills and the, uh, experiences, that increases across our entire lifespan. So we get better. Our vocabulary skills, that's a good example here as well. So as we age, we accumulate more knowledge, general knowledge skills, uh, vocabulary skills. It's one of these skills that stays fairly stable and really increases until uh, the day we die. But fluid abilities, on the other hand, that's one of these abilities that shows this, um, we, we talk about this inverted U-shaped curve. So typically the best performance in our lives are around our 20s, and then it sort of goes downhill from there. Um, so, um, but still, it's very critical for us to also accumulate uh, new knowledge as well. So there are these different kinds of uh, intelligence and kinds of abilities that also show differential trajectories across um, the, develop, uh, the development. The, the development, development of it, yes. You. Sometimes I have some issues with some of these words. But, um, but that doesn't mean, even though there's a, a, a trajectory that shows age-related cognitive decline in some of these um, functions, it doesn't mean that we can still work on it and still improve on it at, until very old age as well. And this is something that we have been working on. So crystallized intelligence can be some kind of a compensatory yes. capacity yeah, for where the, the fluid intelligence drops off. Exactly. Yes. So, but mm -hmm. they're not the same, but they're, they're not the but same, but they're really handoff there. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'd Oh, there's no time to talk about the models, but I, I guess. <laughs> well, what what I when I looked at some of your work, I was 
uh, I could see what the tests were, but I, if you could tell us a little bit about some of your interventions, that what it looks like. Yes, so our interventions now target working memory skills. So again, uh, trying to make people better at remembering information for a short period of time and also information that's highly um, susceptible for um, distraction. So I can give you an example. Oh, so good. we have tablet-based uh, interventions. So we have developed uh, interventions to probe these working memory skills. And the way they look like is... Um, you have a tablet in front of you and then you see um, objects on the screen one after another. It could be an animal or, or um, other object as well, one after another. And what you have to do is remembering, uh, keeping track of these objects as they appear one after another. Um, and uh, what you have to do is uh, to tap on the screen whenever the, the object that you see now is the same as the one and before. A couple so of times the, A before. couple of times before. And we make it harder, so you have to keep track of more things. And we make it also easier if you... Um, if Things are getting too difficult for each individual, and then we make it easier again. So these are adapt, so-called adaptive uh, interventions, always trying to probe each individual's capacity limit at every moment in time. So they do these interventions at home. So they take the tablets home. They do these for a couple of sessions. And then before and after the intervention, they come to my lab, and we test them on a wide range of cognitive abilities to see whether any improvements that we see in these tablet-based working memory interventions might also translate to other functions mm -hmm. uh, in other cognitive domains. And we're really also interested in daily life uh, performance and daily life abilities as well. So it's our hope to also um, that these uh, participants can translate these working memory skills into their everyday life. So maybe... Um, things are a little bit easier. You can keep track of uh, conversations a little bit more easier. You don't have to look at your GPS while you're driving every two seconds. Maybe you can uh, uh, keep track a little longer. So, so uh, subtle things, um, what we're trying to, to improve um, here as well. Actually, that's a whole can of worms. I just read in the New York Times this weekend <laughs> that the GPS is, is nailing uh, some cognitive processes, oh, yeah. start signing it over, so people are 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 missing on data collection when they're signing it over to that. So that that's a disruption. <laughs> we don't, uh, so for those of you who just joined us on Ask a Leader KUCI eighty point nine FM in Irvine, my guest is Professor Suzanne Yaki, Director of Working Memory and Plasticity Lab at UCI's School of Education, currently calling for recruits for her research, uh, memory training for seniors, along with all of her other pioneering work on brain plasticity. So the interventions are also the the tests then. I mean, it's the, it's the same material that you're using for interventions and just you're watching improvements by providing the intervention uh, as a gauge then for well, how there, you're yeah. So doing. there are two things. So we're looking at how um, how much people improve in the training task itself. Oh, yes. So yeah, the same. Maybe I can give you an analogy. So if you do physical exercise, we go running every day, and then we would see how fast you could run after a month. So the same thing we're looking at with our uh, intervention as well. So we see how much they improve in the training task itself. But the critical issue is then it's somewhat boring to see that you're getting better at what you're training on. This is sort of you see, you, you, you get better at what you're training. But the, the really interesting part is uh, to see whether you might also increase in some other abilities as well, in some other abilities as well, um, 
that are maybe less related to what you have specifically trained. So in other memory functions, in fluid intelligence, what we have just talked before, so your ability to solve problems, um, uh, also to, to, to speed of processing. And then also when it comes to undergraduates, we also look at uh, lecture material, how well they, they are able to follow lectures and remembering material for the lectures. Um, also, we're doing a lot of work with kids with ADHD as well, so how well they, they can let's say, stay in homework without being distracted all the time as well. So these are things that we are looking at. So we're looking at so-called transfer effects or generalizing effects, which go beyond the very specific training that, that people do at home with the tablet training. And I would want you to take some time in explaining how when the person involved in this intervention or successfully uh, working, developing, deepening their plasticity, and I'm not sure which term to use at this <laughs> point, that you s have seen with the uh, imaging, if it's an MRI or s other scans, that you're able to see where one lobe of the brain is able to not have to be performing so that it's, it's a, there's a quieting. Uh, with a certain proficiency, there's a quieting of a lobe with uh, and the others are performing so that it's it's a, it's you're dealing with that distraction factor there isn't I, mean, I think there's some automotive analogies that so that only certain parts are really having to run with a well-tuned uh, brain yeah exactly so we're still at the beginning stages to really understand some of these neural mechanisms so yes. what is it actually that is going on in your brain as you're getting better at things so typically what we see in the brain as we are getting more proficient is that um, we see an increased connectivity between different parts of the brain. So we see strength of connections between all the parts in the brain that are typically involved in doing these tasks. And both spheres. In, in all both parts hemispheres, all parts of the brain, and typically working memory functions. They in, engage a wide um, spread and a wide uh, range of different parts of the brain because the information is typically also very complex that we're dealing with. So what we see with increased proficiency is that these different parts of the brain are better connected so they can also work together more efficiently, which then results when we then look in one specific area as yes. well, that the activation that we see in the brains uh, looks like it's getting um, uh, less activated. But, but as you said before, with your analogy, so if the other parts of the brain are working tightly together, it looks, if we just look at one part of the brain, it looks like it's, it's working less, which is only somewhat true, but it's because all the other parts of the brain are working better together and that results in, in, in your better performance. So you're, in a way, you're just working more efficiently. You're, you're getting more efficient in dealing with information and distraction and other things. So that's um, what we see in the brain, what's happening. So when you're bringing in your uh, participants, so are you controlling for some pre-existing conditions like the, how, there's anxiety that's just eating up their capacity in, term, in, in one way of speaking or uh, their maturity? I mean, I, I'm thinking of when the myelination of certain uh, uh, lobes that um, in the... the the extemporal, what's, which one lobe am I trying to remember here? The, um, the, well, the, the, wherever the myelin, yeah. the myelin mm -hmm. sheath is uh, around the nerves that are, that are maturing here, that, that allows the impulses to move more quickly. So there's, there's that sort of developmental difference. But, if, but exposure to neurotoxins, uh, sleep deprivation, are you looking at all of that, controlling for all that uh, to see 
what it takes to tune up these brains. Well, we're trying to control for all these things as well as possible. Of course, we can never control for everything. But so one of the things that we also know from brain development is that especially the white matter tract. So this myelinization that you were talking about before, this is one of these um, uh uh, structural changes that happen across development, also showing a very similar inverted U-shaped curve that we showed, that we talked about uh, just before as well. So it's very similar to the trajectory of myelinization that happens um, with also cognitive functions as well. So typically myelinization um, increases up until our 20s. So it's one of these uh, and especially in the prefrontal regions of our brains, so in the top of, uh, uh, in the front of our brains, which is related to our ability to solve problems or working memory skills, all this newest um, lobe of the brain, so to speak, uh, in evolutionary terms as well. Um, so these are the, the parts of the brain that develop last. But what we do in our um, studies is, so we have subgroups of uh, populations. So right now we're recruiting participants, older participants, senior participants, um, 65 and older, to take part in an experiment and what we do there is so we control for age range and then we have a whole list of other uh, things that we uh, determine eligibility for so for example people cannot have had uh, strokes in just that last year or uh, other things as well when it comes to anxiety this is not something that we really control for we also ask but one of my graduate students uh, one of her projects is actually to look at anxiety and stress and how that might then also impact working memory skills and your ability to also be trained on these working memory skills so she's working on that in a separate uh, study as well yeah, if we can use those automotive analogies further, it'd be like dragging a, a full garbage can behind your car, oh, yes. the anxiety. Exactly. So that really impacts working memory skills. So let's talk about the study. You're looking for 65 years, you say, and older. You don't top it off at, at 80, 85? Uh, or? Right now we're topping it off at 85, but if really someone wants to participate, okay. there's always a way how we can include uh, participants as well and, and um in some other studies as well, or they can participate just because they're interested too. So we don't want to say no just because they do not uh, fit these exact eligibility criteria. They might not enter the the study, our data uh, base there, but they are still able to participate. So this is one of the studies that we do. And we also have another study that we're running with Before you go into the other study, Mm -hmm. so tell us what they're in for, how long you want them in, and the compensation and things and the kind of burden there. Mm -hmm. So that's a very critical information, of course. So we're looking for a senior 65 to 85 who are interested to training their brain. So the way it works, um, they would get a phone call from us if they're interested um, uh, to participate. And then my lab manager or my research assistants would uh, determine their eligibility. Um, And then what they would be in for is if they are eligible to participate, they would have to come in into our lab for about two to three hours in the first part and do a whole range of different cognitive tests and tasks. And then they would go home with a tablet uh, for a period of one to two months. So we ask them to train on the tablet either once a day or twice a day or three times a week for about a a total of 20 sessions. And they would come back again after that in our lab. They are being retested again on these different functions. They would go about their business. And then we ask them again to come back uh, three months after this training completion, six months after training completion, and then also after a year because we're really also interested in to see whether there are any longitudinal effects of the training as well. So whether we see any long-term effects of the training. And that's why we have people come back a couple of uh, months after training completion as well. Okay. 
And the other study, the next one you were going to mention, the ADHD and yes. the age group and what they're in for? Right. So we have another study that we run with kids uh, who have to be diagnosed uh, with ADHD. And the structure of the study is very similar there as well. So the kids have to be between 7 and 14, um, having um, been diagnosed with ADHD. And other than that, it works very similarly. So parents would come in with their kids. We test the kids on a, a range of different cognitive tasks, have them fill out uh, the parents fill out questionnaires, they would go home with a tablet, they train, and then come back a, a couple of sessions later and being retested again on that, um, on that same battery of tasks and uh, questionnaires again. I'm hoping that you're, um, I mean, there's, there's a certain assumption for those that, that first that they have the resources to get the diagnosis yes. and they're sophisticated parents to follow up on that. Oh, but yes. I'm hoping there's ways that you can broaden your demographics so that, that a large cross-reference uh, of, of the population is going to benefit from your study. Yeah, we do. So we also go to schools. So my graduate students and research assistants go to schools and public libraries and other places. They advertise the study there, explain what the study is about. And they don't, so the kids with ADHD, they don't necessarily have to have a physician diagnosed ADHD. They can also be suspected to have ADHD from the teachers or other things too. So we also follow up with the diagnosis in my lab as well. Oh, so okay. it's not one of the restrictions. They don't have to have a, a very official diagnosis of ADHD at this point. So I, I guess for those people that aren't able to come in and work with your intervention, I know my listeners are going to ask this if they weren't here, if they, we had an open line, that short of coming in for your intervention, are there ways that people can work on this plasticity at home? And I, I may be thinking of luminosity. I'm thinking of working on a second or third foreign language and having that the uh, throwing in grammar and verbs and all sorts of extra uh, degrees of difficulty in acquiring an, a, an additional language, if that's part of the, the that mimics the model of your putting uh, a greater a challenge into the exercise, are there things that people could do more on an informal basis to advance their their own situation short of in, uh, coming to your your research lab. Or yeah, definitely. So there are lots of things that we can do also to stay uh, mentally active until very old age as well. And I think the critical part is really that we are challenging ourselves. And this could be through learning a new language, as you mentioned before, or learning a musical instrument, or really also being engaged in, in complex situation, being going out there and challenge yourself uh, constantly. You can also do physical exercise that has been proven yes. to be very effective also to stay sharp as well. Or you can combine all these things, too, to really maximize um, uh, performance. But I think the critical thing is really staying active and stay challenged and being engaged and not just lie back on your couch and um, watch TV, so, so to speak. In, in your intervention, though, that they are they're stationary, there isn't a, an, a motor activation in the, the cognitive testing that you're doing? Right now, there isn't, yes. There but there are will be eventually? Labs. Eventually, yes. If okay. we get the grant funding to do that, it's very complicated to do these physical uh. exercise studies. I wish we could. Right now, we don't do that. But but it's also something that we also ask for and we, we look for how much active participants are. And it's also one of these um, uh, things that might also influence how well uh, people do, how active they are physically as well. Okay, I'm racing folks through these last quick details, but you can dial 949-824-2439. I'll put the email address and all of that. Uh, Chelsea Parlett can uh, take your call and book you for a, a screening. But I just want to ask in closing, Professor Yeki, 
your research seems to be well supported with a plethora of resources. That's the Institute of Educational Sciences, the National Institute on Aging, Department of Defense, National Science Foundation, Swiss National Science Foundation, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in collaboration with the UCI Mind. They're all tacking in the same direction or are they have, do they have completely different objectives? Uh, in a very broad sense, they are all tracking into the similar direction in that we're trying to get people to do better in their everyday life. So you really are interested in improving people's cognitive abilities across the entire lifespan. So starting with preschoolers and then until the old, old age. So we're really trying to improve people's cognitive abilities. Okay. Well, it's been a real pleasure. I have an, another hour and a half of questions for you. I'm hoping <laughs> we can pick up where we've left off in some cases. And sure, uh, with happy. more studies, I know I'll get lots of interest in people hearing this show. So, Suzanne Yaki, I want to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Okay. Before we sign off, Decade Student Council invites you to attend their next journal club. That'll be on Wednesday, February 17th. That's tomorrow if you're listening to the show live, 3.30 to 5 at the uh, Gateway our, the Center, that research center. This quarter, the forum hosts an open discussion between students and faculty regarding gender equity in academia, a big one. They're going to discuss an article by Judith Stephanoris and Yasmin Karasi called Enhancing Gender Equity in Academia, Lessons from Ad the Advanced Program, which is examining the impact the advanced program at UCI uh, is creating, to the extent they are, greater gender equality for tenure-track faculty. Big one. February is loaded with bike events brought to you by Ron Fleming and his department. Uh, transportation at UCI. He's already wrapped up the workshop for new riders this past week. For those looking for more in-depth, hands-on approach to uh, learning cycles, you can um, you can attend the two-part complimentary Smart Cycling that February 25, 5.30 to 8.30 at the Student Center, Doheny Beach. Call and ask for more information of Carol Hernandez at 824-5060. A special benefit for Syrian children will be held locally. St. Mark's Presbyterian is giving a home to the organization Solidarity Through Humanity stepping up to address immediate need for heat. They're holding what they call an emergency fundraiser for heating fuel. Your donations will be wired directly so that fuel can be purchased and delivered right to the camp in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. St. Mark's located in Newport Beach. This event's Saturday, February 20th, 6 to 9 p.m. at 2200 San Joaquin Hills Road. They'll show a video about the camp and food will be available for purchase along with an evening of beautiful live music, including songs from Syria. More information is available on solidaritythroughhumanity.wordpress.com. Uh, I'll put that on the summary, too. Well, this is my wrap. Next week, Dr. Mandy Mount will bring her button-down prevention of campus assault at UCI back to the show. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm -hmm.